I turn my microphone on all the way. Yes, uh, it is Friday. It is July 15th. We are in the midst of summer, and we welcome you to our weekly Chapter 49 podcast. We appreciate the fact that you are with us today. Glad you are with us today. As I mentioned, uh, Chapter 49 has this weekly podcast. We represent most IRS employees in the state of Indiana. My name is Larry Lannon. I'm a retiree. And uh, as a volunteer, I do communication work for Chapter 49 of this podcast is mostly what I do in the area of communications. And we have our, chap- we have our chapter president, Duncan Giles, with us right now. So, Duncan, welcome back. Always good to see you. Thanks, Larry. It's always good to be here. I have to tell you something. We started this podcast over two and almost two and a half years ago after the uh, COVID pandemic really had had its grip on all of us. And of course, it had a major grip on the people we represented, the Internal Revenue Service, our chapter here in the state of Indiana, most of the employees here. And, you know, our national union, which represents uh, many agencies, including the IRS nationwide. And uh, this has been a struggle from the very beginning. And I think we have to recognize the fact that we still have offices throughout the, uh, the state of Indiana and nationally that are still dealing with COVID outbreaks. This is not good. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things that it is happening all over the country uh, and it's happening locally. I got a call this morning from somebody that's saying, you know, I'm very concerned. And actually, I got one yesterday as well from employees at our call site that are concerned about that. And I'm like, well, I can see why that you'd be concerned because, you know, there was apparently a meeting early this week and somebody had a positive case of COVID. And they closed down three offices, suites, office suites right around my office uh, so they could get a good scrubbing today. So, yeah, it's still out there. And with the uh, new variants that are coming along that are uh, resistant or even making folks who have had COVID previously uh, more susceptible to catching it again, it's still a very, very dangerous thing out there. And I would urge everyone to, you know, follow the guidelines, wear your masks, avoid contact where you can, wash your hands and, and get your shots. And the first two issues we are going to talk about are somewhat related, actually related to COVID and its aftermath. Of course, people, uh, the return to office happened for employees at the end of June, and we just completed our first pay period, two-week pay period, uh, with the evacuation order no longer in place. So uh, we, you and I have talked about this. Uh, what happens when you have a reasonable accommodation on file and you feel that there would be risk for you to come into an office and work. We know a little more about that process. Tell us what we know. Yeah, basically, if you feel that you've got a condition that you should not be coming into work into the office for, that you have not done anything during the pandemic and have continued not to do anything in the pandemic, you've not gone out to parties, you've not gone out to events, you've basically not done anything and become a hermit or shut in because of uh, proper respect for this, that you can put in a reasonable accommodation so you would not have to report to the office twice a pay period. That does have to go through the reasonable accommodation coordinator. And once they get that information, including your medical documentation, because you do have to have that from your licensed 
uh, medical professional saying you cannot and should not go in, that can take up to 20 work days uh, before they give you an answer on that. And of course, they're probably backed up as well. And of course, 20 work days is about a month in, in calendar days, right? So we're, we're, we can figure, it's, I mean, roughly, it's about a month before you are going to get an answer. Uh, are there going to be situations where it could be longer than that, where the management will say, well, we need more time? Uh, there could be, depending upon the documentation that comes in, uh, because you're going to have to have pretty specific documentation uh, from that medical professional and it's very possible that the agency's representatives, not your manager, but medical professionals, will want to contact that doctor's office to talk about specifics about that. And, you know, people have gone, well, you know, that's a HIPAA violation to me. I'm, uh, you know, letting them know about my conditions. Well, if you're asking for an accommodation, a reasonable accommodation in this case, uh, you know, you're allowing them to get that information. If you don't want to allow them to get that information, that's fine. But most of the time when they have to make a judgment call on what you've handed in without getting into specifics, you're not going to get the accommodation you seek. So it's really when you say you want a reasonable accommodation, you are more or less going to concede that you are going to have to disclose a lot of medical information. And if you choose not to, your chances of actually getting that accommodation are very low. Is that what I'm hearing you say? That's that's exactly it. Yeah, it's just one of those things that you know, it, it has a reasonable accommodation has to be reasonable to the employee and to the employer. So legally, they do have some rights to make sure that, uh, you know, and I'm not saying anybody would ever do this, but somebody is not making something up to play a game or something along those lines just to be able to stay home. There are a lot of people who have these types of medical issues and do have quite a uh, reasonable fear of not wanting to come in to mix with other people and have been very careful during the entire pandemic. Wearing a mask certainly helps. Being vaccinated, having your booster certainly helps. But, you know, if their condition is such that their medical professional says, hey, look, I don't want them going anywhere until this pandemic subsides and it's continuing to grow again, then, you know, they have to be able to give that information to the medical represent medical representative of the agency. So just one more time as kind of an emphasis, when you're in that 20 workday period, what happens during that period? That 20 workday period, management can say, we want you to come in. Um, one would hope that you would have reasonable management that would say, hey, look, while you're in this 20-day uh, period, we're not going to ask you to come in until we get a final determination um, or the employee wants to take leave during their time, uh, they'd be able to do that so they wouldn't have to go in. But technically and legally can management say, look, these are your days. And until there's a final determination on your accommodation, you need to come in. Yeah, they can do that. Yeah, we're getting a few technical gremlins. So if those watching on video may see a mismatch there, but uh, uh, I, I don't know, uh, Duncan, you know, we can always try to blame that on some, maybe somebody's interfering with our podcast. You know, we've made that allegation before. And it's the funny thing was one time we joked about that and the next week everything was fine. So I'm beginning to wonder. <laughs> yeah, you just never know. It, it, you know, being hermetically sealed in this building and in, in this particular office could definitely have that impact on, on the uh, 
waves getting through, so to speak. Well, yeah, and Yoda, you just mentioned the fact that the offices around you uh, were scrubbed down because of uh, the discovery of somebody with a positive test, yet apparently that person did not come into your office. That, uh, you know, I had, I've, I'm starting to see more and more people come into the office, so they're stopping in here, and thankfully the person who did have COVID apparently did not stop in here to talk to me about a particular issue. All right, so let's move on because you've talked about the reasonable accommodation process and how that works. But there's another angle to this, and this has to do with either you as the employee or someone in your household, someone who lives with you in the household. What happens if that person is considered to be high risk? And high risk has a very specific definition. The Centers for Disease Control, CDC, on their website has listed all of the conditions, medical conditions, that are considered to be high risk. So if you look on that list and you or someone in your household is designated as high risk, how does that change your situation about coming into the office? Yep, there is uh, the portal, as we like to call it, for temporary slash permanent hardships. If you do have that type of situation where you or someone you're in the household with is high risk as defined by the CDC, and you have, again, medical documentation from your medical professional saying that because of this high risk condition, you should not be coming into the office, then again, you can put in for a temporary hardship not to come in the twice a pay period. And, you know, when I talk about this, and I talk to this a lot to employees and fellow chapter presidents across the country, you know, it's one of those things where it's sort of like being a little bit pregnant. You either are or you aren't. You either have this condition or you don't. If you're out going to restaurants every weekend, you're going grocery shopping, you're going to see shows, you're going on vacation, things like that, you're going to be very hard-pressed to be able to come up with a temporary hardship that says, oh, I can't be around people in this particular circumstance where I could everywhere else. So it's it's... For those folks who are genuinely have these types of conditions, have taken the right amount of risk assessment, made sure that they uh, are doing the right things and want to continue to do that for their health and the health of the other family members that live with them that may be in a high risk category. I'm assuming that, uh, of course, your bargaining team nationally with the national agreement greatly expanded the number of positions which are eligible for telework. But we are assuming here that someone is already on telework and we're just talking about that requirement to come in the office uh, two days every pay period. I assume you already have to have a job that can be done through telework, correct? Correct. Yeah, it's a whole different type of situation if your work is not portable. And if you are in a condition where you're saying, I absolutely cannot come in, my work is not portable, My advice to you would be to talk to your local chapter officials about that because that's a whole different set of circumstances and uh, a way that you're going to have to approach that. Okay, so something you need to know if you have any questions, uh, you can contact uh, Duncan Giles uh, through the internal email system of IRS or uh, talk to your local chapter if you're uh, listening and watching outside the state of Indiana If you're in Indiana, we have lots of stewards around the state and officers, and and, uh, you can check with them. And, of course, Duncan's will 
Uh, we'll be glad to answer any questions uh, if he's available, and if not, he'll, he'll get back to you as soon as he possibly can. So moving on to something we have talked about before, and this is something that you uh, discussed at length in your national agreement bargaining. As I recall your description of those talks, management pushed very hard to not have any hard copies, no print copies you can hold in your hand, of the national agreement. The management said, well, you know, that's a lot of expense. We have all this technology, on and on and on. I don't know about you, but uh, to me, and this is my experience, I've been a manager and a union steward, I didn't know any manager that had a virtual copy of the national agreement. They all had paper copies, and the managers all had them all marked up. So it's like the worst offenders of needing a print version of the national agreement, my experience, is amongst the managers in the Internal Revenue Service. But there are still a lot of people who, who like to, you know, mark it up, you know, put uh, special places in there. I mean, having that paper document is easier for them to use than to have a virtual document. Well, it appears the hard copies are finally on the way. What do we know? Yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because I do have a lot of people ask me about hard copies, and the vast majority are management officials from across the country, not just in Indiana, from across the country, saying, where are they going? You know, when are they going to be coming in? And uh, I was chuckling when you were mentioning the bargaining because the management bargaining team was adamant that people did not need hard copies anymore. There was no need for paper copies. Nobody wanted paper copies. And we were like, if you talk to your people, because your managers are the ones who really want those. We have finally now heard uh, that due to supply chain shortages, it's been delayed, delayed, delayed. But it looks like the uh, shipments will finally start going out at the uh, end of tail end of August and September. So hopefully by the August, end of August, September uh, area, people should be getting, people, bargaining unit, non-bargaining unit, should be getting those hard copies of the contracts. And that's good news for just about anybody uh, who uses a hard copy, which, you know, I mean, some people do prefer the the online or virtual PDF version. I'm not going to deny that. And there are ways to mark that up, and there are ways to to make sure you know how to get to certain places, but not everybody has that level of expertise uh, with technology to do that. So be uh, be aware, those hard copies are coming, and it looks like they will be here in a month or two. I want to talk about something else. You know, I just remember when I was a, man, was a manager, I was a manager the last six years roughly of my IRS career, and I do remember how often, particularly our analysts, but also people in the management chain, how heavily they used removable data sources, such as thumb drives. Uh, uh, some people even used uh, other ways to, to uh, use what are called removable storage, you know, how should I put it, ways to do that that are uh, available technologically. Uh, and when you do that, you are taking a, a foreign type of data and plugging it into an IRS system. Well, something changed very quickly, and it got the attention of a number of revenue agents and a few other people at the service. Tell us what happened and, and what's gone on in the aftermath of that decision. 
Are you there, Duncan? Yeah, I'll tell Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Go ahead. Okay. I'll tell you what happened as best I can figure out. The IT portion of the IRS said, sent something out on Monday of this week saying, okay, as of midnight on Monday, we are not going to be able to allow any external uh, drives, any thumb drives, anything like that to enter the IRS system, which became a huge point of issue starting on Tuesday because revenue agents uh, and almost every LBNI revenue agent specifically and a lot of SBSE agents get their stuff on thumb drives and external hard drives from the taxpayers or the POAs. So not only could they not upload those, they couldn't even read them. And I think the best thing that I saw was that LB and I said that they are working with this unexpected uh, issue that has come up. In other words, I'm not sure if IT told the rest of the IRS what they were going to do. Uh, what happened when we got this word is uh, myself and I'm sure several other chapter presidents across the country saw this and sent it up to National NTEU. National NTEU, realizing the implications of this, immediately asked for a briefing from IRS saying, what the heck are you doing? And I've heard unofficially from uh, the IRS side that they were quite blindsided by this as well, so they're all trying to figure it out. But the good news is, is we are trying to get this solved, worked on. So those external drives, those thumb drives that taxpayers give revenue agents will work with our system. How soon that's going to be, I don't know, but we're working to do it as quickly and as expeditiously as possible. Yes, those days of when I worked at exam in the 1980s of the revenue agents and what we then call tax auditors, uh, tax compliance officers, the use of that, those accounting papers, <laughs> that, that went out a long time ago. And uh, if you cannot use an external source, a thumb drive or some other source, because you're exactly right, that's what the, uh, the people uh, representing these taxpayers and the taxpayers themselves when dealing with revenue agents, are going to be giving them. And if all, you know, what you are essentially saying is if we can no longer use these drives, we're shut down. And I don't think that was the intention. No. I'm, you know, I understand IT is there to protect the security of the system, and they want everything to go in the cloud so they can have the ultimate protection. That's great. However, we can't cut off our nose to spite our face to basically say, okay, we're going to do this. And anything that we have, will get, or currently have won't work in our system. It is just an absolutely insane way to go about it, especially when the business units, at, at least the lower levels, had no knowledge of what was going to happen. And if they had knowledge of it at the higher levels, they certainly didn't realize the implications. They do now. Well, and I'll say this, uh, and I'll say this as a guy retired, is purely speculating. I won't ask you to comment, but it would appear to me, based on the way you described this and its aftermath, that there was some, some, something happened for, for, the, for IT to make that decision that quickly with no foreshadowing or forewarning. So it makes you think that they're dealing with a serious situation somewhere in the system. So we hope whatever that is is rectified. And let's hope our agents are 
going to be able to get their data from their taxpayers and use it to do their audits. I think that's the bottom line, Duncan. Uh, Absolutely, that is. <laughs> um, I want to ask, not ask about this, I want to just talk about this and get your reaction because uh, Tony Reardon, our national president, has just issued a, a memo to all the chapter presidents, which you did share with me, and uh, I think is worth mentioning. You may remember during the Trump administration, there was an effort to implement something called Schedule F. Now, we're talking we're not talking about foreign tax returns here. We're talking about Schedule F. We're talking about Schedule F within the internal workings of the personnel system of the federal government, the entire federal government. And this executive order on the Schedule F that was issued during the Trump administration was an effort to take several, actually tens of thousands of jobs, which had always been under the civil service, and transform them into presidential appointees. Now, it really didn't go anywhere, but um, there was an effort made to do that, and another president could try to do that again. And NTU's view is that that, that damages the, the, the whole idea behind having a civil service. You certainly can't have presidential appointees at the very tops of the organizations to make the big decisions, but the work should be done by civil servants. That was the idea more than a century ago, when um, the federal civil service was, was created. Well, now there's a, normally a defense authorization bill is not of much interest to us, but this one is because the House of Representatives has just passed a defense bill which would legally prevent a president from issuing an executive order creating the Schedule F and basically transforming tens of thousands of civil service employees into presidential appointees. Uh, again, the Senate has not taken this up yet, but this is a, a very important uh, a very important issue for anyone in the civil service, Duncan. It certainly is. And you know that's the thing people uh, people from the outside, you know sometimes criticize civil service, sometimes praise it. but the civil service was created, to basically do away with a spoiled system. The, okay, you've contributed so much, or you've done this, or you've done that, I'm going to give that to you. Um, you know, give you this position. These positions that they were talking about in the Schedule F were people who are actually doing the work at a very high level, but still doing the work of the IRS and should be protected from those types of political pressures. Whereas if you're a political appointee, you're definitely going to be answerable to people, and especially if you could be considered an at-will employee and go from the protections of civil service to basically saying, okay, I'm tired of you today. I'm going to be letting you go. So I think it's a good thing that uh, the folks in Congress, and it was bipartisan support uh, for this particular amendment and part of the bill that passed, that said, you know, we need to make sure that these people who are doing this work are doing it faithfully, diligently, and without political pressure. You know, it's a story I love to tell, and I'm sorry, I'm going to tell it again. Back when I first received my driver's license, uh, when I was 16 years old in the late 1960s, the Indiana Bureau of Motor Vehicles was under this spoil system you talked about. And what happened was every time there was a change in party of the governor, all of the license branches canceled their leases. 
They basically fired all the, I'm talking about all the employees, not just the top people, all the employees in the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. So I was trying to get my driver's license at a time when a Democratic governor had just left office and a Republican governor was coming in. And, you know, these people working in this, first of all, you had to find a Bureau of Motor Vehicles. We didn't have an internet then. They'd already uh, canceled all the leases that they had before so they could you know, give it to other people, assumingly people more friendly to their particular party. It could be either one. And uh, and what, what first you had to find a, a licensed branch. Secondly, if you found one, you had a bunch of employees who were doing the best they can, but they got their jobs because they have been involved in political campaigns, which is fine, but they just didn't know how to do the job. They were brand new to it. So this the whole idea of having a civil service goes back to and. and and Indiana, over a long period of time, did eventually provide a civil service to the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. So when you deal with BMV today, you're dealing with a much more professional organization than I ever did. And the federal government did away with that spoiled system years ago, and it took Indiana a while to do that. So uh, there is an impact on every citizen to make sure that the civil service is a professional civil service there to simply implement the law and the regulations and, and the procedure set up uh, by the government. So that's my speech. And and I totally agree. That's a great example of that particular downfall of having something like that. So that's why I'm glad the folks in Congress realize that and are working to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I want to just say the BMV is a great organization now. I didn't agree with everything that Mitch Daniels did when he was governor. I agree with him in some things and not others. One thing he did very well was take the BMV after they had already tried to make it civil service and professionalize the agency. So when you walk in there, you you are dealing with a much more professional and 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 uh, well-greased and, and, and uh, technology-savvy BMV that we, we had before. Okay, Duncan, time for a final comment. Yeah, one of the things that I've always strive to do when I've talked to executives, been on national teams, things of that nature, is, you know, communicate with your folks and be transparent. And basically what that boils down to is tell them what's going on. There aren't, there are very few hidden secrets in the IRS. You know, let your folks know what's going on, what you're being told from above, be transparent with them. The more that you can talk to your people, honestly, treat them as human beings instead of, okay, I need this many people to do hit my numbers, the better off everybody is going to be. So, you know, I'm a huge believer in communication and transparency, and I would hope that everybody listening to this in a management capacity, and we do know that we have quite a few that do that, please continue to improve that. And if you're at a high level, that you continue to push that down to make sure that your folks in management and leadership positions, you know, embrace that type of philosophy because it's only going to make the organization better because the more informed employees are, the more transparent things that they are being told to do and why it's needed, the better off everybody's going to be. I have two quickies. Number one, uh, I think we should recognize the fact that there has been something very important that's happened nationally in the area of mental health. We have a new three-digit number people can call as a suicide hotline. We've had suicide hotlines, but uh, they're kind of here and there and and several different phone numbers and so forth. We have one three-digit number you can call as a suicide 
Prevention Hotline, a very big step forward in mental health. That number is 988. That's just been implemented. Uh, I think that's very important. Duncan, I, I think you and I both have sadly had co-workers who've taken their own lives. It's a, it's a horrible and tragic thing to go through, for, uh, whether it's a friend or a family member or whatever. Uh, preventing suicide is one of the uh, most important things I can think of. So 988 is the number to call. It's very easy to remember as a suicide prevention tool. One more thing I wanted to mention, Duncan, if I can. This We're getting, at least in the state of Indiana, and may vary around the country, but most schools start school in Indiana early in the month of August. Early to mid-August is when schools start. So we're uh, at uh, July 15th, the middle of July now, so people may be planning last-minute uh, trips and maybe doing last-minute uh, travel if you're an NTU member, uh, if you haven't already set up an account uh, at ntu.org, lots of discounts are available for members of this union. Uh, go in there. There's a whole section in there on the website once you've signed in as a member. And don't be afraid to take advantage of uh, one or more of those uh, discounts. Uh, they are there because you are a member. The National Union negotiated these discounts for our members. So I would hope you would take advantage of it. Anything you want to add to that, Duncan? Yeah, there are a lot of uh, automobile and hotel deals out there that uh, you get by being an NTU member. So as you said, do not be afraid to avail yourself of those uh, because that's what they're there for. And you just heard Duncan Giles. He's our chapter president here at chapter 49. We, uh, are here weekly, and we have pretty steadily been here every week, really, since uh, our Christmas break that we had some some time ago. Uh, we want to just let you know that if you think this is a good podcast, you enjoy it, and know others who will also, you'll spread the word. And if you would like links to both our video and audio, just send a, a, an email to Duncan Giles, who put you on a list, and you'll be notified of our audio and video links to our podcast each, each week. Just go to this email address, nteu49 at aol.com. So once again, we hope we're having a great summer, and please be safe and be kind. Be safe and be kind.